Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the coronavirus and trade policy. As of March 11th, 24 countries had imposed some kind of trade restriction on medical supplies. So these are mostly export restrictions, and we're talking about things like masks and medicines, all kinds of equipment. So what we're going to do in this episode is to explain how to think about that kind of thing. Before we begin, trade talks need your help. Now, we all like trade, but only some of us are involved in trade. And if you are one of those special, special people, we would really love for you to get in touch. We would love for you to tell us what you are seeing as a result of COVID-19. How are you keeping things moving? Something's not moving. Email us at email at tradetalkspodcast.com. Uh, you can send me a DM on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. Uh, we, we won't share your identity or, or company or anything if you don't want us to. We just really, really want to understand what is going on. Thank you. Okay, so quick update on where we are with the coronavirus. This is officially a pandemic. Markets are officially losing their minds. Um, I hope that you are all keeping yourselves informed and, and treating this with the appropriate degree of seriousness. You may be thinking, yeah, I'll be fine. I'm young and healthy and I just love hugs and handshakes. But no, now is not the time for that. The risk is not to you. It's to other much more vulnerable people. And, and being responsible is about protecting others and making sure that when the cases come, they come slowly so that healthcare systems don't get overwhelmed. Okay, so on to the policy. Well, because of coronavirus, there has been a massive surge in demand for personal protective equipment. This personal protective equipment, so here we're talking about things like gowns, goggles, masks, and respirators. Masks are those things that you see people, I guess, wearing on, on public transport. They're a bit flimsier. Respirators are, are more hardcore. They they block much more of the kind of incoming particles. They involve more components. Um, so you've got these standard N95 respirators that, that are a bit fiddlier than, than your masks. But even those N95 respirators, they're supposed to be single use. So you, you can get through a lot of them. So at the moment, there's there's probably three sources of this higher demand. We've got a lot of panicked people out there in the world. If you look on Amazon.com, for example, you'll see that the price of these things has gone way up. There's obviously really big demand for healthcare workers who need to wear this equipment to be able to tend to patients to prevent infections from, from, from spreading and keeping patients safe. But also so that they can carry on treating more people. And there's also a big demand from governments that are realizing now that this disease is not going away and they're going to need supplies of this stuff in the future. And maybe their stockpiles coming into this crisis were a bit out of date. Yeah, so so these um, masks sometimes have expiry dates, um, which you have to keep track of. Now, there, there have been attempts to, I guess, curb or rationalize demand. There are reports of healthcare professionals going without eating or drinking or, or taking breaks so they, they wouldn't have to change their, their respirator. There is guidance from the, from the World Health Organization that says that if you don't have symptoms, then you, you really don't need to be wearing a mask. And the WHO has put out a, a sort of call to arms 
to suppliers to please ramp up their production of this sort of equipment by 40% to, to reach the rising global demand for these, these sort of products. And supply does seem to be increasing. There's reports coming out of China that their state-owned enterprises are increasing production. And, and, and obviously, if you are a mask or respirator or one of these equipment producers right now, you are running at full capacity uh, to, to try and meet this demand. But it looks like demand is going to outpace supply for, for a, a good long while here. So in response, since the beginning of the year, 24 governments uh, at least have imposed some kind of trade restriction on on a kind of medical supply. And that number comes from Global Trade Alert at the University of St. Gallen. They monitor trade restrictions. Now, that number, I should say, it does include some restrictions on things like drugs. So the Indians put restrictions on, on 26 active pharmaceutical ingredients. And I think the, the trigger for that was that China supplies a lot of stuff to India. And when China basically shut down because of their quarantine and, and, and kind of related disruption, I suspect people in India got quite worried about available supplies. So that was that. That's slightly distinct, I think, from the equipment the equipment story, but but no less concerning. And then also we have all these other countries imposing bans on, on or, or just some kind of limit or restriction on the export of equipment. Um, and, and a bunch of them are some of the worst affected countries in Asia. So, so you know, if you, if you look at official statements of the Chinese government, they're actually saying they never imposed a ban. Um, but, but the way it's been described to me, it was basically a de facto export ban. So it was one in practice, even if there was no law saying thou shalt not export any masks. Um, and basically the state bought up domestic production and and so foreign orders weren't being filled. I think now that China is increasingly coming back online after its initial outbreak uh, and it wants to be perceived as, a, as an exporter, but at the same time, you've got a bunch of other countries that, that do have export restrictions that, that have been imposed and that are in place. So South Korea, another country obviously in Asia that was really hard hit, initially put limits on what share of its masks could be exported before then banning their export entirely. They've also restricted exports of some of the components that go into making respirators. And in Europe, we've seen a number of these actions as well. So in France, the state has basically requisitioned all masks and they're monitoring the foreign sales. There's news reports that the French stopped a French company, Valmy SAS, from fulfilling an order to the the NHS, the, the British healthcare system. Yeah, and in Germany, uh, companies now have to get approval to export things including masks, gloves, protective suits. There was another story that that actually these restrictions ended up stopping the supply of around 240,000 face masks to Switzerland. Swiss were were not happy about that. Um, And it, it seems that Essentially, Germany is a distribution hub. So so um, equipment is made elsewhere and then moved through Germany to, for sale to the rest of the European market. And and the Austrian economy minister basically accused Germany of, of sitting on stuff that was meant for the Austrian market, that they basically taken hostage. Now, Spain hasn't yet imposed any official restrictions, but I have been hearing reports that the Spanish police authorities have been stopping trucks full of, of supplies and, and, and checking to see whether they're leaving the country so that, that that could also be one to watch. These countries do have a lot of cases of, of the disease outbreak, 
But what's really notable here is a number of these actions are European Union member states restricting trade to each other. And that is something that I think is just is, is quite outstanding here. There are also other countries with far fewer cases imposing restrictions. So that includes Russia, Morocco, Bulgaria. They're all putting some kind of limit in place. Okay, so so what is going on here? You know, all, all this equipment is basically made by the private sector, um, and it's being used by more than just healthcare professionals, right? Industrial workers who might breathe, you know, dust or, or toxic fumes in in their chemical production plant. They need this protective equipment too. I should also say that there are stockpiles of, of equipment that are being distributed by the World Health Organization, although they, they seem quite alarmed about the supplies they have. So I, I, don't, I don't think that will be enough by any means. And I think one of the other major concerns is because China was the initial outbreak country that had such huge demand internally for, for all of these masks and equipment to, to deal with the outbreak there, uh, that it was probably soaking up a lot of, of global supply of this stuff. And, you know, that would have been having an effect on, on prices and availability elsewhere as well. And that probably freaked out a lot of other countries and made them worried about getting access to a lot of these pieces of equipment. I think I think for some of these products, particularly the the respirators, it's my understanding that that some of the bigger companies have have regionalized supply chains. So this isn't a case of the whole world being completely reliant on China. Uh, there is a lot of production within Europe, within North America, within Asia, but also these export controls are, are you know proliferating everywhere. So you know it's still it's still relevant even if the supply chain is more localized than than a kind of global one. I know that's right. For the U.S. case, I looked at the data and a good chunk of what we buy and what we import is actually coming from Mexico in addition to China. Okay, so let's first try and justify these export restrictions. So section of trade talks called reasons why this might not be completely crazy. And I think reason number one is pretty brutal domestic politics. You know, politically, governments might feel the need to prioritize their own citizens or, or demonstrate to their citizens that they're, you know, doing everything that they can. There was a great piece in foreign policy about a political backlash in South Korea after, you know, in in the the, the heat of China's outbreak, South Korea actually sent two million face masks and, and one million medical masks to China. But now in South Korea, people are queuing around the block to get their masks. And, and you know, this is being perceived as, as a mistake by the South Korean government. I think a second major motivation is if, if you just left it to the market, the market forces may result in an efficient outcome, but it could very well be one that's really quite inequitable. And what I mean there is the market forces are going to move the protective equipment to where people are willing to pay the most for it and not necessarily where it's most urgently needed. And another worry is that speculators might come into the market, buy up all of these masks and protective equipment, put them in storage and just wait for the price to spike and take advantage of the situation for profit. So one way of looking at this is through a, you know, an ethical lens of who you think should get these masks in times like this, right? If if a company has a contract with a factory um, and a government which hasn't placed an order but has this outbreak, if that government wants that company to supply it with masks and the company says, sorry, all of our production is accounted for, what what do you do? 
you know, if you've you've got a case of a country where you can see that the caseload is about to rise very dramatically, and then you've got another country where the caseload is already high, and that first one has put in the orders, who who gets the masks? With export controls, I think you're essentially making that decision unilaterally. You're making it for yourself. You're saying, my need is greater than yours, and therefore I'm going to stop everything in the country from getting out. And I think a last really important reason is probably this this issue of a potential lack of trust. And there what I mean is if I am an exporter of these products, I'm worried that if I if I give them up today – that tomorrow, when it is my turn to really need them, will trading partners be there for me and, and somebody sell me some back? And I think in the current climate especially, there may be a lack of trust and governments are very worried about having to rely on other countries out there to protect their publics. So at this point, I think we should we should move on to the unintended consequences or, or the risks of everyone applying these sorts of policies. And, and I think the most basic is that the restrictions make it harder for the suppliers to get to where they are actually needed most. If you think about the private sector, they have supply chains, they have these networks, they have distribution centers, they have ways of dealing with the logistics of getting equipment to where it's needed. Now, if, you, if you're a distribution hub and you're imposing an export control Obviously, the companies that are moving stuff through your country could just rejig their supply chains and move them around your country instead. But at times like these, that may not be a great use of people's energy. And I think the the really big risk that results from all of this is that there's this tit-for-tat dynamic that is is generated where you know, one country, its government imposes an export restriction because they're worried about the safety of their own supplies another country might do the same, and that just undermines the ability of them to cooperate in the future. So at this point, I think we should bring in our special guest, Nadia Rocha, who is a senior economist at the World Bank. And so, so Chad, this was your idea. So, so tell, us, tell us why Nadia is here. So Nadia is one of the few researchers who's actually looked in depth at this question of what are the implications of export restrictions and how we should think about them. Nadia, hello. Hello. Nadia, why don't you start by telling us what happened in the 2000s that led you to to do research into this question about export restrictions? So in the late 2000s, there were two important things that happened that led us to start working on this research. So the, the first one is that between 2008 and 2011, there was a huge spike in food prices. So if we just go back and just look at the at the global price of food between 2008 and 2011, it was 80% higher than the average price between 1990 and 2006. Now, if, if we just consider other other like goods, special like staple food, such as rice and wheat, these kind of commodities are extremely important for developing countries. The increase in prices over there was higher than 100%. So at the same time, governments started to impose a lot of export restrictions specifically on those commodities where prices were increasing. And uh, if we consider, for instance, wheat and rice, between 2008 and 2011, 
many countries in particular, like the big producers, so more than 30 countries started to impose export restrictions as soon as they saw these prices increasing. And if we just try to understand how much these export restrictions meant, they were covering around one third of global exports in these commodities. So what's your story behind why governments were imposing these export restrictions on products like wheat and rice? Well, when, when we think about these, these products that are key for the population, because they are a significant part of the consumption basket, when governments see that the international prices are increasing, they want to shield their consumers from that increase in prices. So as a reaction, what they are going to do is they, they impose these export restrictions. The result of these ex- export restrictions is that producers, so in this case, the farmers that are producing wheat and rice, they are not going to be able to sell abroad, right? So all the production that they are doing is going to be sold at home. At this point, what happens is that there is going to be an excess of supply at home, and the domestic price of wheat and rice is going to decrease for the consumers. So the consumers are going to be shielded for this international increase in prices. They are going to be paying less, and they are going to be gaining for what the governments are doing. At the same time, the farmers are going to be losing. Okay, so so I guess thinking about why a government might want to do that, you could think of a, an almost a political economy story where they they care much more about avoiding losses to consumers than than they than they care about avoiding losses to producers, right? So the, the, they'll take the hit to producers if only they can shield the the consumers. Okay, so so you have this this other bit of the paper where you have this secondary effect where these export restrictions are actually leading to more export restrictions. So could you could you explain that? What's going on there? We found a couple of interesting things. So the first one is that, yes, indeed, like when prices go up, countries react and then they impose export restrictions. But we also found that export restrictions from other countries were contributing to further increases in prices. And this indeed is what we call the multiplier effect. So if I'm interpreting you correctly, you've got this original price increase for for some reason. I impose an export restriction to try to shield my consumers, keep my, say, wheat local. That means there's less wheat out there in the world market. The world price for everybody else goes up. Somebody else out there says, geez, I, I need to restrict my wheat sales as well because I'm worried about protecting my consumers. And you get this multiplier effect of one wheat export restriction leads to another wheat export restriction leads to another one. Exactly. Okay, so Nadia, we should let you go. But is there anything else of the paper that you would really like to highlight? Any final lessons for today from, from what we saw back in the late 2000s? Well, so I guess I guess that the, the analysis that we were doing, hopefully like some of the conclusions that we that we just got to are, are very important for like a similar situation that is happening right now. Our main conclusion is countries should restrain themselves to put export restrictions because even if they are thinking that they are helping like their consumers by reducing the domestic price, at the end, the international price is going to keep increasing and everybody is going to be worse off. Uh, so we, we have a similar situation right now uh, with the coronavirus. In this case, the reaction is a little bit different in the sense that countries, they are, they are imposing restrictions because they want to make sure that they have enough, enough supply at home. But this, of course, is generating this multiplier effect is coming back, right? So if one country is imposing that, 
combine a little bit with the panic of how they are going to react to this crisis. Then another country is going to impose restrictions. And at the end, there is going to be a full shortage of like very key medicaments, gears, uh, like protective gears. And this is going to be bad for countries. And in particular, this is going to be bad for developing countries, right? Like we, when we think about who is producing this kind of medicaments or protective gears is the developed world. And this virus is going to spread also into the developing countries, and they don't have the capacity to substitute uh, what is imported. So it's, it's, it's important that like the countries all react in a cooperative way and they coordinate to deal with the crisis. Nadia, thank you very much. Thank you. Nadia was really great. Now I want to turn to, I guess, the the really big question about what governments should do then instead. And obviously, if you're me, you know that my answer is going to be we should have a multilateral outcome. We should write some rules to prevent ourselves from getting into these kinds of situations. Right. And and we have WTO rules that are supposed to put limits on, on, on countries doing this, right? But there are also exceptions written into the rules on the grounds of public health. You know, the, the risk is if you don't include those exceptions and you say thou shalt never apply any export restrictions, that some kind of disaster comes along. A government says, sorry, public, we can't do this thing because the WTO rules don't allow us. And the public says, or the government says, I don't care. We're going to do it anyway. And then the whole system is undermined. You bring you bring down the whole system just as everyone's having these these personal catastrophes, right? So there's there's this group of scenarios, you know, national security, war, um extreme health disasters where you know, the the writers of those rules said, "You know what? We just think that's so toxic and we're so worried about undermining being perceived to undermine national sovereignty in those situations that we're just going to put in carve outs. We trust people to use them responsibly. I don't, I'm not sure that that you can get away without writing those carve outs in and, and retain the, you know, the legitimacy of, of the system. I think that's right. I think the, the question then is just when governments choose to exercise the carve outs. And hopefully the, the point is here is that they'll restrain themselves a little bit better than they have so far. But for any listeners that are interested, I would invite you to go read GATT Article 11, which is containing all the rules about export restrictions and the carve-outs that when you're allowed to actually break those rules. So maybe, and bear with me here, maybe the solution in the short term cannot be found by writing new trade rules. Trade Talks listeners will be aware that the World Trade Organization has some issues right now. So maybe maybe this isn't the WTO's time. You know, and there are, there are some things you can do, and a lot of them fall under the slightly sappy headline of, you know, coordinate, work together. You know, the, the World Health Organization has some, some guidance, coordinate on procurement so that the limited supply can go to where it's needed most. You probably want to do this at the highest governance level possible. So, you know, the UK is a non-trivial producer of, of some medical supplies. If you're the EU, you might not want to shut out the UK. You might want to set up a system that, that keeps track of who is making orders so that you don't end up duplicating stockpiles in the same place. Um, and, and, you know, I should, I should mention that the EU is, is trying to coordinate a kind of public procurement mechanism. But last time I checked, only 20 of 27 member states had signed up. So I think there is still some work to go 
And there's this problem that that these policies, that the competence is at the national level. So the EU doesn't have competence to decide or to stop these countries doing what they're doing. Okay, so now we've spoken about export restrictions. Chad, what did you do this week? Tell us about your output. What I did this week was to spend some time looking at what the United States was actually doing uh, in, in terms of trade policy in this area. And so far, at least, the United States hasn't been doing any of the export restricting kinds of policies that we've been talking about. But the United States does have a lot of import tariffs that are still in place. Tariffs. Do you remember those? Someone should write something about the tariffs. And so what set me off on this, I I did write something about this, what set me off was on March 10th, the U.S. Trade Representative actually granted some tariff exclusions for a bunch of medical products that were on list 4A. And so these are the tariffs that are now at 7.5%. These exclusions mean that those tariffs will drop to zero, but but only for a year. I thought that that was probably just a, a tip of the iceberg. And so what I went out and did was to put a list of the products that I thought that hospitals might actually need and and want to import to help fight off this disease. And it turns out the United States imports about $22 billion a year of things like masks, the protective gear we've been talking about, but then also the hospital equipment, x-rays, CT scanners, the patient monitors, those things that go beep, 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 all that stuff. And about 25% of that $22 billion comes from China. And a lot of that was caught up in the the trade war tariffs. And so in the in the period since the administration has doled out some product exclusions, but but I think this also points out one of the complications of of the trade war, which is that, you know, a lot of those tariffs that were imposed basically cut off those supplies coming in from China. And who knows when China comes back online and they can sell these masks to the world, and there's massive demand out there from the world, if they're going to choose to sell them to the Americans, the Americans who might decide, hey, we now desperately need these masks because of our own uh, disease outbreaks and infection spreading here. Okay, what else did you look at? So the other thing I looked at is the U.S. tariff data in general, and it turns out for most of these products, the trade negotiators before the Trump administration actually did a pretty good job. They were down to zero. So the United States can buy these things from the rest of the world if there are supplies out there that are available. A lot of the stuff that the United States does import comes from Mexico. Uh, A lot of the high-end equipment that the hospitals need, that actually comes from Europe. So well done for the for the whole travel ban thing. That's that's going to go down really well, guys. And so that that exactly is is a huge concern because if you are an American now, especially given the craziness of these export restrictions, you want access to as many sources of supply of these products as possible. And voluntarily cutting yourself off uh, because of tariffs, because of travel bans from any one of them could be a really really big deal. Indeed. And that is all for trade talks. A huge thank you to Nadia Rocha at the World Bank. Do check out her paper with Paolo Gordiani and Michele Ruta titled Food Prices and the Multiplier Effect of Trade Policy. We'll be sure to post the links to that paper at our episode page of our website, and that is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Big thanks from me this week to a lot of people that helped me figure out exactly what were the most important products for trade. And that would include David Van Ness at Penn State University, Mihir Torsaker at the U.S. International Trade Commission, Rod Hunter at Baker McKenzie, and a lot of other people who I won't name. 
I also want to thank Simon Evanett at the University of St. Gallen. He's at the Global Trade Alert. Um, everyone should go and read his, his report um, analyzing global tariffs on, on medical supplies. Apparently, there are many countries that are not quite as good as the US when it comes to um, applying quite low tariffs. MFN tariffs, not those China tariffs. But I agree, Simon's doing amazing work in helping keep track of all of this data. A big thanks finally also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because two export restrictions is worse than one. Worse than one. Worse. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. Okay, hang on. So, so because two export restrictions is is better than three? Great. Saved it. Saved it. <laughs>